This is the Urban Political, the podcast on urban theory, research, and activism. Welcome to the Urban Political podcast. My name is Ross Beveridge, and I'm here with co-editor Marcus Kip. In this episode, we discuss how we might democratize housing. In particular, we discuss ideas and practices of housing commons, cooperatives, and the role of the state, drawing on examples from Europe and North America. We have a guest moderator and three further guests. Moderating is Matt Thompson from the University of Liverpool. Joining Matt are Mara Ferreri from the University of Northumbria, Amanda Huron from the University of the District of Columbia, and David Madden from the London School of Economics. So, over to you, Matt. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Ross and Marcus, for organising this, this discussion and uh, inviting me to moderate it. I'm particularly excited to, to get us all us four in the room today, as I don't think we ever have been, at least I haven't seen, I haven't met you guys before, not all of you anyway. And uh, so, I, I, yeah, I'm really excited to sort of broach some of the questions that we're going to, I'm going to raise in the next five minutes in this sort of introductory framing. Uh, and also sort of t- t- say a little bit about my interest in this area too. So let, let's get going with that. So, I mean, since the dawn of industrial capitalism, when the state dispossessed commoners from the means of subsistence and pushed them into their, into, to sell their labour power in cities, we've arguably been dealing with a near perpetual housing crisis. That is extremely difficult and challenging conditions for providing decent housing for all. So in fast growing cities in Southeast Asia and Africa, we see severe overcrowding, poor quality living environments, alongside the associated dispossession and displacement in rural areas that is driving the explosive growth of urbanization. In the UK, where where I'm based, we've been talking about a chronic housing shortage, a lack of affordability for the best part of half a century, not longer. Across Europe and North America, more broadly and increasingly globally, we see the state, both national and local, embroiled in processes of state-led redevelopment, state-led gentrification, in order to capitalise urban land, leading to violent dispossession uh, and displacement. In fact, planetary gentrification and accumulation by dispossession are arguably the common global urban experience today. These conditions are becoming so acute, in fact, that many scholars and commentators are talking about the return of the housing question. Stuart Hodkinson, for instance. The housing question was originally posed by Engels in his 1872 work of the same name. In it, he identified the central conundrum caused by capitalism for the working class and everyday life, that persistently poor quality living environments, scarcity, inequalities, deprivation and alienation produced by the labour-capital relation cannot possibly be resolved without abolishing the capitalist mode of production itself. Engels derided the anarchist Proudhon and his followers for believing that isolated solutions to the housing question could ever resolve these issues, that the kinds of localised small-scale initiatives such as co-ops and communes that we might call housing commons today, promoted by utopian socialists like Proudhon, were in fact just utopian dreams that misapprehended, misapprehended the structural nature of the problem. Engels' devastating critique was prescient in many ways. He saw correctly how the bourgeois reformist, as he called it, solution of regenerating deprived areas of housing through state intervention, method he named after Haussmann, the man responsible for, responsible for Paris's transformation from medieval alleys into grand boulevards, would simply reproduce the problem anew and displace poor conditions elsewhere. This in many ways anticipated the difficulties of post-war urban renewal and modernist comprehensive redevelopment ambitiously advanced by the state 
in many countries across the world in that post-war period and in the interwar period, but which too often produced new slums elsewhere or even in the very same modern buildings only a few decades later after they were built. Partly in response to these state failures to address the housing question, a global movement for reappropriating the housing commons has emerged in recent decades, often taking the form of campaigns for different kinds of what some might call community-led housing, others call collaborative housing, and others still, uh, quoting myself here, call collective housing alternatives. These generally take the form of specific organizational and legal models, such as cooperatives, which perhaps we're most familiar with, co-housing more recently, and, and also community land trusts, for instance, but there's a host of, of many others. Under the banner of the commons, we see struggles for housing justice in very localized contexts, from defending against gentrification to contesting financialization to demanding greater democratic participation in state-provided public housing. Um, but these have sometimes even been connected up beyond the local to movements at the urban and translocal scale, so to demand the right, the right to the city or to feed into anti-austerity campaigning, for instance. In some cases, such as in Barcelona, the platform for people affected by mortgages, PAH, a social movement aimed at resisting evictions resulting from foreclosures in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis, has also played a part in expanding the housing commons through supporting the establishment of co-ops and was in many ways the platform for the launch of the municipalist movement in the city. So the municipalist platform, Barcelona on Camus, has evolved, Barcelona in common, has evolved out of these housing struggles. The mayor, Ada Calau, was one of the founding members of PAH. And Barcelona on Camus today is, is, is engaged in democratically transforming the local state from within and democratizing the local economy through supporting the development of co-ops and commons in a, in a kind of bid to prefigure a post-capitalist polity. So there are some really interesting openings here presented by the new municipalist movement for which Barcelona is, is seen as the vanguard, for the local state to protect and expand the housing commons through this process of state institutional occupation and transformation. However, there are obviously deep contradictions in such an endeavor. For many autonomous Marxist and anarchist theorists of the commons, such as Peter Leinbau, the state and capital anti are, are antithetical to any notion of the commons whatsoever. The state is the ultimate agent and enforcer of enclosure through its fundamental role in upholding private property rights. Yet at the same time, the organizational articulations of the commons, like community land trusts and co-ops, must be framed in the legal terms of property in order to access the benefits that come from legislative recognition, policy support, public funding, and state protection from capital and the market. So I guess the questions that I'd like to consider today, and, 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 and I hope we can sort of we can touch upon through various different examples is um, what, what are the possibilities for expanding the housing commons in this current conjuncture through renewed engagement with the state? What are the costs of that engagement? What are the contradictions? What potential is there for housing commons movements to build new institutions for what we might call non-state public housing? I'll, I'll, I'll very briefly just um, go into some of my own personal reasons for, 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 for sort of looking into this stuff. My PhD at the University of Manchester, close to a decade ago now, was looking at um, the urban CLT movement as it was emerging across the UK. And I was particularly interested in Liverpool, ended up studying Liverpool and two um, urban community land trusts in that city, Homebaked and Granby Fortress. And I began working with activists to, to help identify how they might jump through various policy and legal hoops to try and get funding and institutionalise their projects to realise these visions for their neighbourhoods that they had 
um, they were putting in place through the CLT framework framing. And I, and I began digging into the history of the city and the, his, and the history of, of housing struggles, particularly around, um, around commons and collective alternatives to public housing. And I found that actually many of the seeds for the present day activism in Granby and Anfield were sown in previous uh, waves of experimentation, particularly the 1970s housing cooperative movement. So this has been described as Liverpool's cooperative revolution or co-op spring, and it set in motion a kind of a new model for developing public housing, what some at the time called public sector housing 2.0. There's a strange coming together of the co-op movement with its own independent autonomous sort of history with the public sector. So in the 1970s, there was some legislative moves toward funding this, this, this new system, um, massive state, central state um, subsidies for developing new build co-ops. And the council as well, and the, lo the local council retained nomination rights for some of the allocations of that housing. So this is a strange coming together, a kind of public common partnership, as we might call it today, um, or what Mara might call a, a, a public cooperative nexus. So I published this research as an open access book uh, with Liverpool University Press last year called um, Reconstructing Public Housing, Liverpool's Hidden History of Collective Alternatives. And the book is really concerned with thinking through how to expand the housing commons through institutionalization and using the powerful tools of the state and of bureaucratic organization more generally without succumbing to the bureaucratization, the commodification and the co-optation of, of, those, of, those, um, of those things by the state and capital. And now I'm doing similar work, thinking about it at a larger scale across, uh, across urban, um, urban environments through looking at mun the municipalist movement. So I guess today for me, I'm bringing together two, two, uh, two areas of my, of, of my research. Um, and as I said at the beginning, I'm really excited to, to be speaking with, um, with, with David, Amanda and, and Mara today, as they've each, each of their work has been really inspirational to the, to the development of my own thinking in, the, in these areas. So, for instance, your, your work, David, especially with uh, Peter Marcuse in, in, in your book, In Defense of Housing, has been particularly inspiring to, in terms of thinking through the political economy of housing and the notion of crisis as well. Right? So this, this idea of crisis as being a near permanent condition of capital for housing, particularly. Uh, and your, your, your work, Amanda, so particularly your, your book, Carving Out the Commons on Tenant Organizing and Housing Co-ops in Washington, D.C., I found it resonates for a, very, a great deal with my own exploration of similar things in, in Liverpool. Um, particularly found that, that, the, that the, the very interesting kind of exploration of how maintaining the commons, um, hard, fought, hard, fought, you know, hard fought for commons that, 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 um, that require maintaining in the long run needs balancing with, against this kind of more expansionary idea of sort of um, appropriating new commons. And your work, Mara, especially with Lorenzo Vidal recently on this idea of the public cooperative nexus and public policies for developing um, cooperative, the cooperative movement more generally, comes to very similar conclusions to my own on, on public common partnerships. And I'd be very interested to hear about what you think around those policy mechanisms and how contradictions entailed with trying to create the, these, this kind of non-state public housing in, in going forward. So with all that in mind, Let's let's begin with um, begin with you, David, if we can, because I think you provide this this overarching framing uh, very well indeed in, in in the in the book in your book with with Peter Marcuse. So let's begin with with the context of the housing crisis. So what is the housing crisis? What defines it? What's driving it? And perhaps if you could, I mean, 
It'd be interesting to hear how you think it might be different from the housing question as originally posed by, by Engels at the dawn of global Thanks a lot, uh, Matt, for that introduction and for having all of us here. It's, it's, uh, it's really exciting. I think that the housing crisis, first of all, is a term that we need to be slightly skeptical of um, because as, uh, as you'll have seen, it's, it's used a lot by many different people for many different reasons. And I think there's some very conservative applications of this concept and there are some more critical and sort of system transforming applications of it as well and so I think it's uh, it's important to be clear what we're talking about it I, I, talking about when we when we use it I, I think critical understandings of what the housing crisis is um, point to as as you say uh, citing angles this ongoing production of residential inequality, and uh, disempowerment and dispossession. Um, so it is uh, something that in different times and in, in different places and different historical periods, capitalism has done in different ways, but it's been relatively constant that the people at the bottom of the class hierarchy that, that capitalism necessarily produces um, are generally are not living in, um, in inadequate accommodation. And the housing crisis sort of names this structural feature of capitalism. Um, this uh, it's something that is produced in an ongoing fashion. It is uh, you could even say it's one of the crisis tendencies of capitalism um, that it, it that capitalism produces a class of people um, and uh, does not does not produce adequate housing. Um, I think obviously the housing the housing question has, has undergone a lot of transformation since Engels' time. Today, um, we're dealing with concepts like financialization, precarity, um, the whole sort of suite of concepts that, that points to the specific forms of housing dispossession that people experience today. Um, so today, it's, it is a matter of um, privatization of public housing or, or, or council housing, which I'm sure we'll talk about a lot, uh, a, a, a lot uh, in this conversation. It's a matter of um, working class housing being bought up by by big corporate landlords and uh, made unaffordable. Um, it's a matter of different forms of repressive political movements sort of interfacing with the housing system in different ways. Um, so it's it, it, it's a varied term and a varied question, but I think it um, points to the structural production of uh, of, uh, of housing inequality and, and of insufficient housing um, for for people at the bottom of uh, or you know, or even in many cases towards the middle of uh, of capitalist class hierarchies. Brilliant. Th thanks. Thanks, David. I mean, just a quick follow-up question. Do you, do you buy Engels' general point that, you know, um, we'll, be, we'll be with crisis continually unless we do actually get past capitalism? Uh, well, I think Engels had good, good reason to take that position. I, can, I, I think it makes sense um, in the context of what he's saying. I don't think it should be taken to mean that you can't do anything about housing problems or housing struggles 
um, in any sort of capitalist context. I mean, it, it, it may be that you can't solve the housing question under capitalism, but it doesn't mean you can't change it. It doesn't mean you can't transform it. And I think ultimately um, the housing system, you know, it can be altered. And I think if, if it came to a point where um, everyone did have adequate housing, I think we would sort of look at this system and, and clearly would not be capitalist anymore. Um, so I think uh, as it, it's completely misinterpreting what Engels was saying to use it as a sort of justification for political quietism. Um, but uh, I, I think a really important lesson to take from Engels uh, is that housing struggles are necessarily connected to so many other struggles, struggles in the workplace, um, str political conflict and struggles within the state. And you can't see it as a sort of separate specialized issue. Um, that can only lead to technocratic reformist approaches that, you, you know, might alter things in the margins, but are not going to fundamentally change um, the sort of place of housing within society and, and basic questions about who, you know, who is able to live in adequate housing. Okay, great. I, I think you've alluded there to the, to some of the, the, the potency of the commons as a, as an imaginary or a discourse or a movement for thinking through um, how to address this crisis that capitalism kind of produces. So I, I, I'd like to move on to, to Amanda and ask, ask you, Amanda, how, you know, what is the salience of the commons, really? If we take a step back here and think, um, I mean, I, I went into perhaps a bit too much uh, detail around the commons and its different permutations, but what is the commons here in, in relation to housing? You know, what, why has it gained so much traction amongst activists and, and particularly amongst scholars, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's all a lot of us talk about in some disciplines, particularly geography. Um, and so, you know, and how does the commons articulate a compelling alternative imaginary, if you like, to, to capitalist and to also state forms of, of housing? Sorry, not, 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 not a small question there. No, that's great. You know, when I think about the commons, and this is a bit overly simplistic, but I think it's, it's useful. You know, I think about a resource that has been largely decommodified and is collectively governed um, by the members, you know, the people who, who make use of that resource. And of course, um, that's the practice of, of the commons, the sort of practice of commoning this sort of social act that is um, really at the heart of it, of producing, creating, um, reclaiming, maintaining the commons over time. Um, but yeah, I think this, this idea of decommodification or at least partial decommodification um, and collective ownership and or governance, um, and, and we can apply that to housing. And I think, um, you know, it's compelling because this idea of, you know, there's, it, it's, so, it's so clear to people around the world um, as, um, as we just heard from David, you know, that there is this, that built into the capitalist system is this, um, is, is this fact that people cannot, you know, people at a certain level in society simply cannot access the housing that they need to thrive. And so it's very clear that we need, um, we need a new way to approach housing. And I think, and, and, and I think it's very obvious to lots of people that um, what we need to do is remove the profit motive from housing. So to decommodify it in some sense. Um, but I think what's also true, and this is, you know, I'm, I'm interested in this conversation because I'm very interested in this question about the relationship between the commons and the state. Um, and this concept of non-state public housing is, 
interesting to me. Um, I'm interested to hear more about what what that could look like. Um, but but I think there's a there is um, a recognition that public housing, at least if we look at the United States context, um, you know, <laughs> public housing was this this great idea that was never fully um, fully funded, fully implemented, you might say, in the United States. Um, and there's sort of a distrust of the state. Of course, that's true, not just in the United States, but in many parts of the world. Um, and so this idea that the people who dwell in this housing are actually the ones who govern it instead of having the state as a landlord um, is, is compelling, I think, to people who um, don't think that the state can actually provide the kind of housing that they need. And so, um, so I think that's the kind of compelling vision is this idea of people who are building power collectively through claiming and living in and governing this, um, this common space, their housing. So that's a very compelling, um, as, you, as you say, alternative imaginary um, to both the capitalist real estate market and to what we would call in the United States public housing, state provided housing. Um, that is the compelling vision. And, uh, but I would say that, well, I'll leave it at that. And, but, I, I do, but, but I do think that um, it's important to think about, to sort of rethink the role that the state could be playing in housing provision. Yeah, interesting. Thank you, Amanda. It's, um, at the beginning, you, 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 you talked about decommodification as the, as the kind of um, distinguishing factor, I guess, of the commons. But of course, I mean, decommodification is something that the state can do too, right, through public housing. And, um, but then, of course, as, as you developed your answer, it sort of moved down to the, towards the path of sort of democratization or participation in housing, which, is, which sort of does something perhaps which the state in the past has struggled to, to provide. And I guess that's the clues in that phrasing, you know, it provides, it's, it, it's, there's a paternalism to the state perhaps. And I'm, like you, I'm really interested in, in trying to find out how we might reform public housing through this concept of non-state public housing um, and think about the state in, in, in new ways, um, which may be difficult in this, in this, in this, this conjunction, as I, as I said earlier. Um, okay, so let, let's move on to Mara, and um, it'd, be, it'd be great to hear a bit from, from you, Mara, around, around this concept of non-state public housing as it's been, it's been raised. And I first came across this concept in reading your co-author, Lorenzo Vidal's work on, on on this kind of housing in Denmark and Uruguay. And then again, in, in both your work around this public cooperative nexus concept. So maybe, maybe you can talk us through a little bit about this idea of non-state public housing and, and other kind of terminology that, 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 that does a, a, a better or worse job of capturing what we're trying to get at here. Thank you, Matt. And thank you for inviting me um, to this discussion. I think, what is really intriguing about this idea of the non-state public housing is uh, to refocus the question on what do we mean by public housing. And I think what uh, really distinguishes the current moment from, say, the middle of the 19th century is that we have a wealth of experiences of more or less uh, successful or unsuccessful or variously successful forms of public policy towards 
forms of democratization of housing, forms of decommodification of housing. And I think what really characterizes the current conjuncture is a a certain um, poverty of imaginary that comes from a neoliberal discourse around the failure of public housing. Um, on the one hand, and also about the actual practical residualization of um, publicly backed and publicly informed and funded housing in different contexts. And of course, I'm I'm very aware that I'm speaking from a global north perspective here, but even moving from um, the UK as uh, a place and, 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 and a specific history to say Southern European context, um, public housing has very much um, is, is banded around as a concept, but at the same time, its histories can be incredibly different uh, and also can really uh, point in different directions. So for instance, in the case of Spain, uh, where I've been lucky enough to do quite a bit of research recently around um, the emergence of this new cooperative housing movement, uh, particularly in conjunction with uh, the municipalist um, uh, movements in Catalonia. In Spain, public housing was very much uh, geared towards publicly backed home ownership. And so public housing is not what in other contexts is understood as uh, publicly built and publicly managed uh, social rented housing. So inherently, that was a type of public housing that was built to promote home ownership. Uh, and therefore, it's it's a kind of public housing that does not have the long-term horizon of decommodification as its aim. So I think to begin with, then, there is that question of what do we mean by public um, when, when we are discussing or when we're proposing alternatives. And I think that's very spatially and historically specific. Um, and on this point, I also... I was also, I'm, I'm, I'm very much, I'm, a, I'm an avid reader of your work, Matt, um, and Amanda and David, of course, but um, in terms of t- taking that historical approach and really thinking about and looking at what were the debates at a specific moment in time around the types of provision um, that the state was being, in, in many ways, lobbied um, to, to generate, in many cases from nothing or from a philanthropic tradition. And and so, and again, it's interesting to think about how some of these more alternative, alternative in the terms of self-managed form of decommodified housing, which we could imagine as commons, emerged also from that critique of top-down paternalistic management of housing. And one example of this um, is the whole movement that emerged around mass squatting in London in the 1970s, where a certain governance and a certain policy opening um, enabled, or some would argue, um, re- recodified and reframed what was very much a reclaiming of housing um, and, and self-management of housing. There was not necessarily against forms of privatization and commodification, but it was very much in many cases against the type of public housing provision that was available at the time. And, and many of the co-ops that emerged at the, um, in that specific moment had quite strong um, political ways of rethinking, for instance, um, gender relations in the household. So you might have lesbian separatist uh, cooperative housing, you might have uh, women only uh, cooperative housing or LGBT 
types of cooperative housing or also anti-racist forms of housing. Uh, for instance, the absolutely important and crucial movements in the East End of London um, around Spitalfields um, and, uh, and the Bangladeshi uh, community refusing council housing because of the threat, because of the xenophobia and racism they were subject, subjected to and therefore generating forms of, of housing which uh, more closely allowed that self-management. So I think, and I'm just giving some exam these examples really to kind of bring the conversation back to what we mean by public in that context. And so the work with Lorenzo Vidal um, is a reflection on that and tries to really think about what has worked and what could work um, in terms of reclaiming certain forms of recognition through public policy and reclaiming certain forms of decommodification, but on other terms, on terms of self-organization, which is, and self-governance, which I, I, if I would agree with Amanda, these are the two key issues at stake when we talk about housing commons. Well, well, thank, thanks, thanks, Mara, for that. Um, I can see there's a there is a there is a um, a live issue in in this debate around the public versus the common in 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 the principles that they embody and, and the direction that they are traveling in. Um, and in my work, I'm I'm all I'm trying to find commonalities and ways in which perhaps the commons is pushing notions of the public in in new directions, or perhaps even just to realize the, the principles that it, that it originally sort of started with. I wonder, David, if, if perhaps you'd like to explore some of those connections between the commons and the public, whether they are um, related in any, in any real sense or whether, they, or whether they are coming from completely different traditions, perhaps the public rooted in, 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 in notions of the state, which is bound up in disciplinary and, 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 and notions of sort of management and control, and the commons, which is much more about um, democracy and participation and, and kind of um, citizen-led um, activity, which, which has a completely different tradition. I wonder if you do see any kind of, um, any coming together of these in, 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 in the near future. Well, I, I think that's a very helpful formulation that I, I, I think I first encountered in um, something that Margaret Meyer had written. And that is that housing movements have always struggled with and against the state simultaneously. And I think it's really important to sort of keep this in mind when thinking through all this. Um, I mean, the, the sort of question of the state itself, just uh, as Mara says, similarly to the concept of the public, the state is far from a straightforward category and straightforward entity. States do, the states can do different things in different contexts, different parts of the state can act um, in conflict with other parts of it. Um, and uh, it's clear that the state plays a very important role in the housing system, um, as well as acts, is able to act on, on a scale that, that few other institutions are, are able to do. Um, so, I mean, I think it's, it's not really a matter of saying, you know, should housing be state or non-state or where should the sort of dividing line be drawn? I think it's a question of what does the state do um, and to, you know, to what extent is it democratized? Who is who? Who who has social and political power, and who's able to sort of use the state to exercise it? Um, I mean, it is uh, it, it's clear, as Mara says, that states have pursued 
many different goals with regards to housing and some things that sort of seem like potentially um, sort of roots towards the partial decommodification of housing often can be ways for states to support markets and to support market actors. Um, so it's, it's quite complex, you know, public housing really historically has been itself a site of struggle. I mean, not only to sort of establish it, but within it, um, between um, inhabitants of public housing who are struggling for um, their own residential space and struggling to secure a space within the, the housing system, to, to secure power within the housing system, and the state, which often wants to use it for other goals to, you know, con- to control um, labor or to try to um, step down on political dissent. Um, so I think it's, I think it is complicated. I mean, it's clear that the state cannot be an answer in itself because um, as we said, states, states do many different things. And, and many times the way, even when states are interv- intervening in housing, it, they do so for uh, system maintaining ways. Um, but you also, I, th- I think you can't um, give up on states just because they are so important for the housing system. Um, so I, you know, I, mean, I think, you know, one question then is, can the state be a sort of vehicle for the commons or can the state be a vehicle for movements to decommodify and democratize housing? Um, I think it's, you know, you can find plenty of examples um, historically where that has been the case, but again, it's, it's, it's always a site of struggle. So, um, I mean, I think it's important to certainly to distinguish between um, the state and the commons or, or, or social movements or what have you. Um, I mean, I think the commons is, is talking about a, a sort of ethos, about a, a set of, of political and, and legal and, and social claims that, that movements make, um, but they can't really be fully disentangled. So it's, I mean, it's, it's it, Again, I think it's it's a complicated question, but um, I, I think it's not a matter of sort of affirming one or the other so much as understanding them both as as sites of struggle. Yeah, that, I think that formulation of being a site or an arena of struggle was really helpful uh, here, David, for, for sort of theorizing and thinking through these these relations. The state isn't some entity, you know, it's not necessarily just the agent of uh, of capital, as some Marxist perspectives, very crude ones, might might put it, but at the same time, it's it, it, there are forces that play out through it, which are, which are dominant over others. And I guess we, it, it's about finding ways to intervene in that space of struggle that might provide opportunities for the commons and other and other other counter forces to to create their own space uh, with that support. But yeah, I find this 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 idea of of struggling for recognition or struggling for space within the state within public housing quite intriguing, and how then commons and commoning movements. Um, Will create their own spaces if they if they if they lack the recognition, and I think this is where like I think this is where the issues of class, gender, and race really really come into play. You know, so my own work in Liverpool, um, the cooperatives in the 1970s were seen by um, the, this incoming Trotskyist um, militant tendency-led Labour council as a kind of elitist bourgeois project, quite exclusionary. So co-ops are seen as a sort of almost like a middle-class kind of co-optation of, of, um, of what the universality of socialist housing should, really should be. Yet at the same time, of course, they could be critiqued for 
for, for racist policies. At the time in Liverpool, the public sector was incredibly racist in many ways, and I, you know, I, I won't I won't substantiate that now with claims, but and of course sexist. So there's there are all sorts of these factors playing out in quite contradictory ways, and it's in, uh, and I think it'd be interesting to, to explore some of those dynamics here now. So I mean, in, in what, so Amanda, I, I'm quite intrigued by your work in Washington. I think it plays into the racial aspects around housing and how cooperatives um, channel some of those um, channel some of those issues uh, in interesting ways in relation to to the lacking of the state perhaps yeah I mean I think and actually kind of building on what um, David was just talking about in terms of the relationship between the state and the commons I mean I think one of the things that I find really interesting about the case in Washington DC specifically, um, which is where I've done my research, is, you know, the, the limited equity cooperatives that we have in the city um, really exist because of some laws, <laughs> some tenants' rights that we have on the books, um, which were created by a very activist city government in the 1970s. And this was a city council and mayor who were coming, who were people who were mostly Black people coming out of the civil rights movement, coming out of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, um, some very progressive people politically on the city council um, who were really ready to take some serious progressive action in Washington, DC, the capital of the country, a majority black, 70% black city. Um, and so they really had this kind of, um, they had a really uh, progressive mission when they were elected. The city had not been allowed to elect its own city officials for a hundred years. And so in 1974, we finally got that right back. And it was in 1974 that this slate of very progressive leaders was elected. Um, but they were also pushed on all of this stuff on lots of anti-displacement legislation and tenants' rights legislation more broadly by a tenant movement that was very strong in the city in the 1970s. There was lots and lots of tenant organizing going on at the neighborhood scale, at the citywide scale, at the building scale throughout the city in the 70s. And so there was a big push on the part of tenants um, and there was a very receptive um, elected city council and ultimately mayor who, um, who really wanted to do something about this. And so it is an instance where we have, um, you know, we have a sort of state at the, at the level of the city, the sort of state governance that, um, that was open to new ideas and that was excited to try some new things in order to provide safe, decent, affordable housing for its constituents. And so, but of course that also wouldn't have happened without the pressure from below from the tenant leaders. So, um, so yeah, that's just to say that there was this, um, you know, I think this very important role that the state has played throughout the city's history in terms of enabling the creation of these limited equity co-ops, basically because through giving tenants the right to purchase a building if the landlords put them up for sale. And, um, and through, through exercising that right, many tenants associations have been able to buy their buildings and create co-ops. Um, but there's also, you know, a part of that, especially um, in the early years, in the late 70s and early 80s, was very much um, a recognition that this was a black city, that most of the low income tenants in the city were black people, um, and that enabling the creation of these limited equity co-ops was a way for black residents of Washington, low income black residents of Washington to own a piece of this city. And it was, that was a really important part of 
the development of these co-ops historically. Um, and it's always funny to me <laughs> when you sort of hear about co-ops, at least in the US context, I think there's this general idea that it's like a white hippie thing, um, that it's some sort of alternative middle-class kind of thing. Um, that was certainly not the case for the co-ops that were established in DC in the 70s and 80s. Um, Jessica Gordon Emmert has a great book, Collective Courage. It's about the history of black cooperative endeavors in the United States. And you know, these are co-ops that come out of necessity and come out of a long tradition of mutual aid in the black community in the United States. Um, and so, so yeah, these are mostly black spaces, at least originally. And then over the years, um, they've been much more brown spaces as well. Lots of immigrants have been part of starting co-ops. And they are, you know, some of them are really quite highly, actually highly racially and ethnically diverse. Um, so there's a real range of them now. But but the development of co-ops in the first place was really related to black political power in the city. And so, um, so I think that's been a really important part of, that's certainly been an important part of that history here, but I, I, I don't think it's just DC. I think it's in other cities and other parts or, you know, places um, as well. This relationship between um, the need for low income and black political power. It's also connected to, of course, if you get displaced from the city, you can't vote <laughs> for that. You know, you're not a part of the, 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 uh, the body politic of that city anymore because you don't live in the city. Um, and so there's re this relationship between the, you know, the people in power, if, if, they're, if their constituents are voting for them, you know, they want to kind of keep them in the city. So there's, there's a relationship there. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I think recognizing that this really very progressive um, approach towards tenants' rights came out of a largely black movement is important to recognize for sure. And that this commoning, you know, this, this commoning, these commoning practices um, very much came out of a mostly black tenant movement. Yeah, there's there was, there were so many synergies with with that story to the way in which um, black communities in Liverpool um, have been treated and have, and have campaigned out of that mistreatment, have campaigned for collective housing alternatives, um, particularly Granby Four Streets Community Land Trust today. And there's a sense in which you know uh, their community has been stolen, or the neighbourhood and housing has been stolen from them in the past. And there's a by 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 appropriating that space through this collective ownership structure, there's a kind of there's a there's a finding a, there's getting a stake back in that that place which can't be taken away from from people but i do wonder i do want i do wonder whether there's something here around cooperatives and their status within the commons versus trusts and obviously trusts have their own history which is really quite problematically bound up in in charities and philanthropy you know trusteeship uh, holding land in trust for others there's a, there's a sense in which that's problematic too but Co-ops. What about co-ops? Co-ops are a stake in the ownership system itself, in property. You know, some people talk about them being kind of um, collectivized forms of private ownership, but still private ownership. And I and I wonder how. Um, maybe we can start with you, Amanda. But um, we could, moving on to uh, tomorrow after afterwards around. And please do. You know, everyone just just chip in if there's something that you desperately want to come back on or, or or talk. Just please, just just. Um, I know we can't see each other right now, but please just jump in. Um, but yeah, so that, that relationship between cooperatives and the commons, 
is intriguing. How, how are they exclusive? Do, are, are, are critiques made against them as being exclusive spaces, spaces which may well um, create the, the conditions for um, strong solidarity and enhanced cultural identity through the process of owning something collectively. But is, is, is the common critique against them as being exclusive spaces actually a valid one? And does that, how does that relate to the idea of the commons and the commoning being about like, you know, a more expansive idea of, of life? Yeah, I think that is a super interesting question. And I, I do think they're exclusionary. They're necessarily exclusionary. I mean, you have a key to your apartment door. <laughs> you know, you, you, you lock it when you leave. And, um, and that's very important to people um, is to have a space that is their refuge, that is their home, um, that, that they can keep other people out of. <laughs> so it's sort of like, by definition, they're exclusionary. Absolutely. And this is, you know, one of the things that I struggled about when I um, was working on my dissertation, which later became my book, um, was this question of exclusion. And, um, and you know, I think there's, there's different ways of understanding what the commons is. And certainly, I think one understanding of the commons is much, much broader. It's, it's just something that's open to all. Um, and, and, and then you can have other sort of definitions of the commons that are much more um, bounded, you know, and this is kind of following off of Eleanor Ostrom and, and the sort of institutionalists who have studied the commons and thinking of them as these bounded resources. And they work because some people are members, implying most people are not members, um, but those who are members um, collectively care for this resource because they know that future generations are also gonna be relying on this same resource, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, they're exclusionary. Now they're exclusionary at a certain scale. So at the scale of the building, if there's 24 apartments in there, you know, those 24 households are gonna have housing. I do think that um, they are less exclusionary when we think about them kind of in a broader context. The fact that um, a limited equity co-op at least, which is to be clear, that's the, the, the mostly decommodified, <laughs> though not entirely, um, version of the housing co-op that I would think of as a commons. I wouldn't think of a market rate cooperative as a commons because it's bought and sold on the market. Um, but a limited equity co-op, yes, is um, the price at which you can sell it is restricted so that the share is affordable to the next buyer coming in. Um, but these are, um, yeah, this is this is a form of the commons that, um, Sorry, I just lost my train of thought there. But, but, but I think another thing that's, that's really important in terms of thinking about these co-ops as commons and kind of also um, bringing back in the, the question of kind of racial equity, I would say, is that these are decommodified spaces. And as I said, they can only be um, bought and sold at a certain restricted amount so that it's affordable to the next buyer. Oh, I guess my point was, it's not exclusionary over generations because it is open to future generations of people who are also low income, who may be able to, to, to sort of buy into the co-op for a very small amount um, and sort of keep it going for generations potentially. Um, and so it, it's more open in that sense um, than a typical market rate kind of housing unit would be. But I, I do think, yes, I mean, housing, I think most people, there, there are maybe a, a, a radical enlightened few who want to keep their housing completely open to all. But for the most part, I think people want private spaces that they can retreat to. Um, correct me if any of you all think I'm wrong, but I, that's my coming from the US context too. But I do think going back to the racial equity question is, you know, 
Um, these are limited equity co-ops and they are, okay, they are an ownership stake in a sense, as you were saying, Matt, um, but you can't really build wealth through owning a share in a limited equity co-op. And so in the U.S. context, again, um, home ownership, you know, one of the <laughs> reasons to become a homeowner is to accrue wealth that you can pass on to your children. And, um, and you can't really do that in a limited equity co-op. It depends on the exact model of how your co-op is set up, but the ones in DC are very limited in, in terms of the equity that one can accrue. And so, um, you know, one person I interviewed for my research years ago said, yeah, when I first found out a black man who I interviewed um, for my research, he said, when I first found out about limited equity co-ops, I said, oh, well, that sounds like something a bunch of white people dreamed up to keep black people poor. And he later changed his mind and he now lives in a limited equity co-op and has a management company that helps manage them. But his point was, you know, this is a form of housing that's not gonna make people rich. And so in a sense, yes, you have control over the space, you have affordability, um, but it's not an ownership stake the way an ownership stake is generally understood in the US context. So there's that very interesting, I think, wrinkle there. And there's, at least in my city, there's been lots of debate over the years over this question of, are we providing, among sort of nonprofit housing, housing providers who help help these limited equity co-ops get started, um, there's been a lot of kind of angst over this question of, you know, shouldn't we be, if we're going to provide home ownership housing, shouldn't we be allowing people to build some equity through that housing? Um, so there's been there's been lots of debates over that over the years here, and I'm sure in other places as well. Um, but yeah, I think um, I think these are all really interesting questions, and um, yeah, and I'm interested to hear what, what other folks what other folks think about this because I do think in the long term, like we might all say, yeah, yes, we need to decommodify housing. That's important, but you know, if the only way that you can really build wealth. Um, is through your housing, then we got to be real about the fact that that is, um, you know, that's a consideration for a lot of people. Not the poorest of the poor are never going to be able to build wealth, but people who are kind of um, at lower, uh, you know, uh, a sort of lower working class might be able to, um, but this housing ownership doesn't allow that. So interesting question. I might jump in um, with a case study from from Catalonia, from Barcelona, um, where these debates are raging, absolutely, in terms of exclusionary versus universal. And again, as I said earlier, uh, there was never that much of a universal public housing provision anyway. Um, existing provision accounts for um, under 2% of all housing stock in a city like Barcelona. However, there is still this idea that that should be our, the aspiration should be this universal, universally accessible um, provision. And I think, in principle, I would very much agree with that. In practice, all public housing um, has criteria for selection, criteria for access, and and in the case of many cooperative housing that emerged from some degree. Uh, and here I'm kind of jumping back to the UK and, and to the 1970s and, and beyond, there was always some degree of participation of the public sector in, 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 the, in defining the criteria of access, um, chiefly through income, 
sometimes through nomination, through waiting list. So, so in terms of access and exclusivity, um, there can be systems which are quite hybrid. Uh, if, if, if the concern is about who is able to access those commons, um, then the question, really the emphasis should be, um, should be placed on, on these mechanisms of access. And in the case of this new emergent cooperative housing movement in Catalonia, um, it's important to, to consider that we're talking about, uh, while still a very marginal sector, however, one that has grown exponentially and very much has grown through the lease of, of municipal land for these new developments, and in, in, in a few cases also to the lease of, of uh, property in municipal ownership, vacant property. And in these cases, the lease um, comes with criteria. And so the, the cooperators, the commoners that are involved in this cooperative housing, which are called uh, cooperativas en sesión de uso, so it's, it's users, um, uh, users, co-ops, uh, which could be seen as a form of zero equity co-op, because even though there is a down payment, the down payment is returned with minimal uh, inflation indexing, but no, no equity can be accrued, really. Uh, in those cases, those who can access the land and can participate in this project have to prove to the state uh, that they fit within certain criteria. Um, so again, we can talk about how exclusive they might be on, in other terms, in terms of social and, and cultural capital, in terms of know-how, in terms of participation or non-participation in certain movement, movement that might enable them to hear about this. But, but these were the same. For me, it was quite interesting doing this comparative, a historical comparison with what was happening in London in the 1970s. These were exactly the same critiques leveraged against the squatters um, who were reclaiming recognition for their collective management of the properties they had occupied, which were in municipal ownership. And that's why those hybrid mechanisms uh, where the municipality might retain ownership, but the management might be cooperative. Th that's where it emerges. And even then there was this critique of, of, of cooperatives emerging from in a sense, self-selected intentional communities, in this case, community of struggle. Um, so, so again, and again, bringing this idea, I think, of uh, race, uh, class and gender intersections is very important and there isn't enough work on this. And I think that's definitely a trajectory uh, where we should go. Um, we should go down in, in, in furthering this discussion. Maybe one last point I had thinking, listening to Amanda, um, was very much the question of this uh, of, of comparing or contrasting the exclusivity in the moment and the exclusivity which is intrinsic to home as, as, as a site also, a certain private site, uh, and, and this idea of, of the longer term. So the sort of the, uh, the longer term openness of these models. And so paradoxically, in some cases, the, the strength of a cooperative structure or other forms of collective governance was precisely what blocked attempts uh, often promoted by the state to commodify what had been previously um, a collective collective or, or public housing. And that was the case, and Lorenzo Vidal writes about this in the case of, of Denmark. Uh, but, but similarly, some cases in, in London showed that. So in a sense, maybe 
that's also what we should look at, not so much focusing on the community-led, as in the community that is at the origin of these projects, but also thinking about the community for, the, the future community that is coming. And that's why with Lorenzo um, and the article that uh, Matt was mentioning earlier um, in the International Journal of Housing Policy, we, we propose that to really understand these mechanisms, we really need to think about maintenance both in, in the terms that Amanda set out in, in, in her work, but also really in terms of how do you build an infrastructure of laws and policies and powers and counterpowers that really does not allow commodification in the long term. And I think that's really the, the challenge. Yeah, just to come in on, on the, those points, I think there's a really interesting discussion um, because it shows that all forms of housing tenure, again, are, are um, sites of struggle, sites of contestation. Um, and I think that it's not a matter of saying, you know, this is the one, this is the one housing form, this is the one form of tenure that uh, we should sort of pursue going forwards. Um, I, I think there needs to be a housing politics that brings together residents of housing, people who inhabit housing um, across different tenures, across different housing morphologies and tries to democratize the housing system as a whole. So there, there clearly are um, potential sources of solidarity between people in housing cooperatives, in public housing, people who are struggling against private landlords. Um, and I think there needs to be a, a sort of approach to housing that, that that brings together people living in all of these different forms um, and transforms the system as a whole along a, along a certain set of principles. I and mean, there needs to be an emphasis on the people who live in housing. Um, so if currently housing system, certainly in um, here in, in London and in the UK and in many other places across the world are moving towards privileging um, people who profit off of housing rather than people who live in it. Um, the emphasis needs to be on people who live in housing. Um, and there also just needs to be a general turn towards democratizing housing, giving, giving inhabitants more control, uh, connecting housing more deeply to other claims to social citizenship and um, and, and other sort of deep, substantive, universal social rights. Um, within that direction, I think there's space for lots of different forms of tenure and lots of different forms of housing. And it, um, it you know, there, there, there will be conflicts within all of these forms as well. Um, I mean, I think that the sort of general direction that housing systems are going these days is. The problem, I mean, it's moving towards increased financialization, financialization increased commodification, uh, generating huge amounts of precarity and residential inequality. Uh, so there needs to be a different direction, but you know, within that, that direction, there's space for many different sites of, of housing practice, I guess you can say, in housing politics. Thank you all. That, 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 that's some fascinating issues you've all brought up there. Lots of questions that I have, which... I don't think we can get answered in the next 20 minutes or so, but um, for me, there's a lot here around, like, as Mara alluded to, the policies and procedures for maintenance in the long run. How do we how do we get the state to fund those that might well be delivered by communities themselves or by residents themselves in more democratised forms of, of 
of public housing. The issue for me is like, how do we how do we get beyond reaction, beyond beyond how do we get beyond this idea of reacting to um, to some external threat or some lack or some deprivation, which is what a lot of housing commons movements seem to be born out of a struggle, right? And this is what Amanda Amanda alludes to in her work. You know, this idea of this idea of solidarity being created often through shared cultural identity or a shared position, a material position in relation to some external threat, and a struggle for, for that, some, something better to be to be put to be put in place. Really, um, how do we get beyond that and move towards something that's more proactive and more systematic? How do we start replicating this stuff? without losing the very energy, the very organic energy and solidarity kind of those, those, those moments of, um, of people coming together and excitement and, and, and energy that, and creativity that's generated by those, by those campaigns and those struggles. How do we translate those into much more proactive, systematic development of this? You know, and it relates to this, this, this idea, David, I guess, that you brought up at the end there around um, housing being the kind of site of subjectivity formation for other struggles, for, for yeah, it, participation in in the everyday life of the neighborhood and of of your own of managing your own housing seems to be a kind of almost like political school for many people in pushing them into other struggles um i don't know what the question is and all that but i think there's a kind of there's a there's a connection in all of those things around thinking about how we how we sell this idea of commoning i guess beyond its confines in, 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 in kind of struggles born out of reaction to create an upswell, a groundswell, if you like, of, 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 um, of if, you, if, I, if I dare say so, a kind of municipalist politics. And I wonder if, um, wonder if maybe we can start in reverse order and David, do you have any thoughts around, around that? Well, I think we're seeing a generation radicalized by housing problems right now. Um, and so I, I don't think um, this is a political issue that's building from nowhere. I mean, there is widespread anger and, um, and, and a lot of political energy around this issue of housing. I mean, it's, you go to any large city these days and talk to, talk to people. I mean, you know, basically any non-rich uh, person is struggling with housing in almost every large city. Um, and it's an issue that's, that's there, that's mobilizable. Um, it is, uh, it, it's something that, that I mean, can be activated in, in lots of ways as well. I mean, I think intuitively people have a sense that housing is a different sort of thing than sort of other consumer goods um, in our world. I mean, I, I really do think that there's some understanding that you need to have housing in order to participate in the rest of political, social, and economic life. Um, and there's even amongst people who are sort of, you know, largely um, sort of happy with the political economic system uh, and the sort of state of the world these days, they, they do see houselessness and homelessness and um, residential injustice as a problem. And I, I think it is, it is a matter of sort of connecting this to a political strategy, connecting this to a political direction, um, and, and really struggling in a very concrete way against the groups and institutions that 
profit from the status quo. I mean, the uh, real estate capital and um, and uh, you know, wealthy homeowners. I mean, they it's, and other sort of conservative components of uh, of the housing system exercise a lot of political and social power. Um, and I mean, partly this takes the form of shaping our ideas of what housing should be for and of, of, of who deserves housing and, and of how housing should look. Uh, partly this takes the form of shaping housing regulations in ways that people don't even understand. Um, but I think it's, I, I think it's an, it's an issue that, that can, can definitely gain traction. Um, you know, has gained a lot of traction already and is, it is something that is certainly deeply shaping municipal politics. Um, and, you know, in, in other cases also deeply shaping national and in some ways even international politics. Um, so it, it is, uh, I think it's, the question is not sort of like, you know, can we sell um, municipalist ideas or uh, the sort of the, the notion of transforming the housing system to people um, I really think it's a matter of sort of harnessing this energy that's that's out there. I I very very much agree with David, and I, I think the question there is also about creating those connections and those alliances between different forms of struggles. And so uh, sometimes you might have a very uh, sort of immediate response. Uh, towards the threat of eviction or the threat of displacement, which has its own rules and its own types of responses from movements. But to really transform, those really need to start connecting with the struggles, for instance, around greater participation in urban planning or around the greater representation in sites of police of, of uh, decision-making. And again, I might sound a very reformist here, but I think both types of forms of action need to take place. You need to enter certain spaces of power, bring different kinds of demands in those spaces, while also at the same time, build a counter power from below that actually eventually um, will lead to some form of political response. And I think um, sometimes the kind of typologies that we have discussed today, so the Committee Land Trust, the cooperative, they can be incredibly exclusive, exclusionary types because of the kind of technical know-how required to even come about, to even bring about these kind of options. And, and what, I, what I've seen in many different contexts is that you know, that's always, in, in a sense, is the missing piece or is the last step. And sometimes you're, you're struggling to remain in place or you're struggling to maintain a public ownership of a resource. Um, and you might be content with that and not do the extra step because the extra step might take five, seven years of incredibly bureaucratic um, process, fighting to carve out that space uh, in a legal sense. Economically, it might require capital, it might require building also um, specific types of policy communities. And that might not be what the housing movement is ready or, or wants to do. But I suppose in a more positive sense, and I would agree, there is so much anger and the experience of precarization and displacement has now permeated many different social groups. 
in, 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 in the vast majority of cities that something could really emerge from those. And I think it's, it's drawing those connections, it's making those connections between those who are experimenting with these models or those who know about these models and the kind of the demands from below. Yeah, I think um, this really resonates with me and with work that I'm seeing happening right now in terms of tenant organizing um, in DC right now. That's, I mean, there's been an explosion of tenant organizing because of the pandemic and just the economic devastation of the pandemic and the job loss. And obviously this is <laughs> happening around the world, um, but it has been really um, pretty incredible to see the kind of organizing that's coming out of that. Um, and so I do think, but you know, to this question about housing as a potential site of political participation, which David brought up and Mara was talking about. I mean, I think this is really key. And, and you know, there's an organization in DC um, founded in 1978 um, and very active in the 80s and 90s called Washington um, Inner City Self-Help. And they were a black led organization. And, and they helped start a lot of limited equity. They did tenant organizing and they also um, helped connect tenants to kind of development and finance and stuff to get these limited equity co-ops started. Um, and they really saw their work in terms of helping get these co-ops started as a way to both provide affordable, secure housing to the tenants in the short term, but also as a way to train political leaders um, because the process of starting the co-op, of, of keeping that co-op going over the years was, as we've been discussing, was this democratic process that required, um, and, and that was very much a learning process for, for the people involved. And so, so this group saw this as kind of almost, almost like a training academy, these co-ops for people, low-income tenants who, who would then, they hoped, go out and be more involved in their neighborhood and community and city more broadly and be more politically engaged because of the experience that they'd had um, in helping run their co-ops. And so, and this, I mean, I think this certainly happened to a certain extent. I don't know, um, you know, I don't know the degree to which that, you know, that really took place, but, but this idea that this housing co-op, that this, this housing commons could be kind of a training ground for political leadership, I think is a really interesting one. Um, but I think along with that, and, um, you know, Mara was just talking about this, the kind of effort that it can take sometimes to really keep these things going. Um, there is so much labor involved in maintaining these, these spaces over time. It's so much work. Um, I, you know, I have studied these spaces. I also lived in a limited equity co-op, a very sort of multiracial, multi-income uh, co-op for six years. and so so seeing up close kind of the the amount of work that was required to kind of keep this space going um was pretty um made an impression <laughs> i'll say and and i think um that that's really important to recognize um a lot of people you know one woman i interviewed said you know she wanted to help tenants start limited equity co-ops so they could stop worrying about their housing and just come home and have a nice affordable place to live, stop worrying about their housing. But in fact, becoming part of a co-op meant that you might end up spending a whole lot of time worrying about your housing and kind of making sure that, um, that you were able to, to hang on to it and, and, and keep it going through all sorts of financial and social um, challenges. So um, I do think it's just very important to recognize the work of commenting in general. Um, 
and to recognize that, um, you know, I think, again, this is potentially where the state can come in, you know, as a support for commenting practices. Um, and I, and I, and I do, you know, I definitely do not want to give up on this concept of public housing. I mean, I think, or social housing, there's lots of, of course, ways to kind of conceive of this, but this idea of state provided housing, I think is a really important, is, is, is crucial to thinking about how we can kind of move um, towards in, in, in more just directions with housing. Amazing, Th thank you very much all. Um, as you were talking, I mean, it's you're really throwing up questions in my own head and about my own work around this. Um, and my experience of some of the cooperators in Liverpool, um, what they've been through and, and, and the activists doing community land trusts today there. It's, and, and there's a similar, um, a similar experience of kind of sort of post-development blues, as they called it, um, a kind of almost like a postnatal depression where you, you sort of given birth to this new thing in the world, this, this community group, this cooperative organisation and this actual piece of new housing that's been developed and designed by this community, right? And, and suddenly you're left with this forking baby where, and rent arrears need to be paid and you need to actually like speak to your, you know, speak to your, 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 your fellow cooperators about how they might not be coming to enough meetings or whatever. And you start to do all the nitty gritty managing um, the difficulty of the, and the boringness of the bureaucratic process that unfolds then over the next few decades. And this kind of like this degeneration of, of, of cooperatives and other kinds of housing commons through that process of bureaucratization, death by bureaucratization is, is such a common one. I feel like it's almost like we ask too much of, of the commoning movement to be doing all the technical know-how as, as, as many of you have talked about here, to become experts in this stuff when there are already experts out there because you know there's a kind of sense in which we shouldn't be outsourcing things to these to these experts because they're, 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 they've got you know they have other agendas, there's profit making to be done. So I guess my final question and a bit of a wrap up here is the sort of sense of and it's a sense of where to draw the line. I mean, where do we, is there a sense in which, in, in the same way that municipalist politics conceives of it, we need to think through more clearly in the, in the movement, if you like, about where the amateurism has to stop, uh, where kind of demo, democratic decision-making has its bounds and beyond which there's the experts, the specialists. You may well be able to impart knowledge and train people in, in certain aspects of it, but actually, you know what, maybe it's best left to them to get on, fulfill some of these kind of more mundane aspects of, or, and professional aspects of doing, of doing quite complex um, housing developments. Um, and I guess that's the kind of question which is now currently occupying me. And I wonder if any of you have, you know, what are the institutional configurations and partnerships or arrangements that might begin to start to articulate that kind of relationship in ways which maintain the democratic sort of, you know, ethos of, of, of commoning and the drive of it, but at the same time seems to be able to take off some of that, that weight and pressure of having to run everything as a, as a group. And I mean, maybe this would be my final question. And I'd like to thank you all really for, for a great discussion, but I just, yeah, I mean, maybe we can finish on some of, on, on, on reflections on that or, or in fact, if that is just too much of a, of a, of a, of a tricky or boring question, because it is about like institutional configurations, but you know, if that, if that, if you don't answer that, maybe just, um, Please just let us know about anything that you think um, is important to this discussion as a way to sort of uh, to wrap it up. But thanks again for joining us today. It's been great. It's been really good. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Maybe we can start with we can start with with David and 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 then Mara and Amanda and Amanda. I think this this question of 
expertise and the relationship to housing movements is an interesting one. Um, one of the things that housing movements have long done is connect tenants and, uh, and, and other residents of housing to experts and specialists um, who can sort of help them navigate a hostile housing system. Um, and it's, you know, it's really important work and the housing law is incredibly complicated um, and having clinics um, or education sessions where people learn about their housing rights is incredibly empowering. And it's, it is, uh, it's a really important thing that housing movements do. I mean, helping, helping people negotiate with housing officers or with social workers um, and helping people in housing court. I mean, my, my students sometimes um, ask me, you know, what, what do you think is like the, after I graduate, what's the, what's the best way I can sort of, uh, you know, make a career in, 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 in sort of urban politics and housing. Um, and, uh, you know, <laughs> one of the good ways is to become a left-wing lawyer um, because it's really, really important sort of helping people not be evicted um, or uh, helping people uh, bring cases against abusive landlords. Um, so there's, there is definitely an important role for specialist knowledges. Um, but I think the other thing to realize is that housing movements have always had a critique of expertise and a critique of expert knowledge at the same time. One of the reason one of the reasons housing systems look the way they do right now is because um, working class people, uh, people of color, women, lots of different, um, lots of different people who live in housing are not considered to be experts on housing, um, even though, um, you know, it, it, it's many of these groups of people who are doing the work of maintenance and social reproduction that we were talking about. Um, and, you know, on the household scale and on the, the neighborhood scale and, and, and the scale of the city as well. Um, so there's, there, there's an important sort of politics of knowledge within housing politics or within um, the field of housing as well. Um, it, I, I don't know that we can really speak in the abstract of, about where the line should be drawn between um, sort of inhabitants, activists, specialists and, and other people. I mean, I think these roles are negotiated on a daily basis in different housing collectives and different housing movements and tenants and residents associations. I mean, the, these are, these are sort of live questions that are, that, that are answered practically. And I, I don't know that it's useful to come up with an answer in the abstract, but I do know that one of the important functions of housing social movements and, um, and something that really should be on the radar of critical housing scholars is this question of the politics of knowledge within housing and within cities more generally. I think it's, uh, there is, there is definitely a, a long history with ebbs and flows about does the proximity between expert knowledge production and housing movements and, and perhaps uh, in the UK, in London, there has been a little bit of a, of a flow more recently because of the mobilization against demolition of public housing, because of the mobilization against gentrification through planning processes. 
I don't know. I I always I always look at other examples and 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 see and see some hope in in the ways in which movements organized to reclaim the space and the time and the expertise to for self education around housing and around in all its facets, um, legal, economic, uh, in terms of governance and technical support or forms of uh, indirect subsidies through advice and information services have almost always been present in those cases where, for instance, in the case of cooperative housing, there was uh, some degree of state involvement and like a lot, an important growth of the sector. And I'm thinking about the situation in, in Uruguay, for instance, or the situation um, in, uh, in the Netherlands more recently with some of their co-housing models. Um, and it, w- it was the case in England in the 1970s, uh, where there was an education officer uh, from the cooperative housing agency who was precisely meant to take that place. Um, so, so this on, on, on the one hand, on the other hand, I also think that this will always need to be paired up with a recognition of the value of the intrinsic value and the often non-verbalized uh, knowledge of maintaining a place as a home, collectively or individually. And that is the kind of knowledge that doesn't belong usually to the written or the, or the spaces of knowledge production to the universities, to the professional bodies, but is, is the knowledge of this differential commoning, as Elsa Notterman would have it, of just maintaining certain spaces and, 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 and the social reproduction that comes with it. And those are often practices which are gendered, which are racialized, which are devalued. Um, so I think the two, I would say the two elements are really important. Uh, to hold together, even though they kind of take us in different direction. I think these are such important questions. You know, I think about this question of sort of specialist knowledge. um, And I just, you know, so many of the co-ops that I have worked with, um, studied, uh, become friends with, (laughs) um, are just would would be so psyched if they could get um, a sort of reliable, trustworthy, outside entity who could come and just help them kind of manage their home um, in a way that was respectful of the dwellers of the inhabitants, the owners, um, but that also kind of could just get things done. Um, and so I think, I mean, uh, David, of course, you know much more about this than I do. I, I don't know much about it, but I, I do know that in New York, you have as an organization that I, I believe kind of fulfills that role to a certain extent with the co-ops in New York. Um, But yeah, to be able to have a kind of trusted, reliable outside institution that maybe is connected to the city, or maybe it's not, maybe it's a separate 501c3 type of organization, to be able to kind of help the co-ops manage everything, I think um, would be incredibly useful and would take a lot of the kind of weight off the shoulders of co-op board members. Um, I think... (laughs) You know, and, and this actually relates to the question, I think, about um, your earlier question, Matt, which I thought was so important about how we get beyond kind of the reaction crisis mode in terms of thinking about maintaining these. And I was, it's good I had my mic off because I was laughing pretty hard when you were talking about this sort of idea of, of you know, once you've established the co-op, it's like you fall into this postpartum depression. Um, it's so true, you know, it's, um, and how do you keep that kind of energy alive um, and I think if there were some sort of 
trusted outside, um, maybe publicly funded um, organization that could just kind of handle the boring stuff, the bureaucratic stuff. Um, and that might free up the co-op members a bit to, um, to, to sort of engage a bit more politically and socially, both within the co-op space itself and also in the broader space of the neighborhood in the city. Um, I think, you know, I, I think one thing that I've seen that ha has worked at some of the co-ops that I've studied is, you know, people recognize this, this pattern, of course, in, in, in their co-ops. And they say, you know, now that we have, um, you know, now that we got what we fought for, you know, this is when we all started arguing, for instance. <laughs> um, or, you know, this is when things kind of um, became less communal. Once we actually got our housing, we all kind of retreated into our apartments because we had won the battle and, you know, that was it. But as it turned out, of course, the battle um, is ongoing for life in terms of housing. It is a constant struggle. Um, but I think the, the co-ops that seemed to do the best were ones who really kind of addressed that head on and said, okay, well, let's think about other projects that we can engage in, other ways to kind of, uh, to, to continue to do this kind of work. So for instance, one co-op started a community garden in the space in the lot behind them. And that was kind of a way to extend their commoning work into another project outside of, but related to the housing co-op. Um, but it gave them a place to kind of put their, those creative energies. Yeah. And that idea of like the excitement of starting something new, um, because I do think that's really important to kind of have that ongoing creativity. I mean, you, and I think you used this word before Matt, but this idea of, of the collectively creating these spaces together is a profoundly creative act. And that I think is a lot of what gives people the energy to continue with it. It's fun. <laughs> I mean, there's lots of arguing, there's tons of arguing, but there's a lot that's that's fun and, and very deeply satisfying and empowering about it. So I think if there's ways to kind of move those energies into other realms, maybe beyond the co-op, um, then that, that can be exciting for folks and that can potentially ultimately actually even help the co-op itself because that energy is still continuing to flow. Um, yeah, so I think there's, I think there's some really, I think there's some hopeful prospects for kind of thinking about the expansion of the commons over time. Um, but all that said, I, I still do think that um, in order for that to happen, we really do need better structures in place for supporting these spaces. And whether that comes directly from the state, like a state agency, or whether that's a state funded entity, um, NGO type entity, I do think that's, that's really critical for um, creating the, giving people kind of the breathing room to, to develop and, and do more um, politically. Brilliant. Thank, thank you all for, for asking, um, for answering even my rather convoluted question um, in, in, in very convincing and compelling terms. And, and yeah, I mean, just to, just, to, just to finally just sort of wrap this up, I guess, I, I, for me, it's, I, I feel like it's about sort of channeling like that, that energy that you, you mentioned there, Amanda, into, like you say, into the political questions that go beyond housing or beyond, beyond the bureaucracy of housing into those other political questions that that um, you know that, that that we're concerned with about the neighbourhood and about the city more broadly, and I guess that's where for me that's the kind of promise of municipalism in starting from the politics of the urban everyday, as 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 Ross Beveridge and Philip Park would call it. You know, starting with these kind of um, aspects of everyday life in housing, in dwelling, in the neighbourhood, and 
trying to somehow expand them out to assemblies, to people's assemblies, neighborhood assemblies, city-based assemblies that can, can, can channel and continue this, this kind of energy and this kind of deliberation beyond perhaps the more technical questions. But um, yeah, I mean, it's a city, you know, where that goes, we, we don't know, I guess. And I, I mean, and lastly, I mean, I was gonna, it, it, remind, it reminded me something really, something about what one of you said reminded me of um, something people in Liverpool have said uh, in the past around uh, when these sort of housing housing commons campaigns um, finally sort of win that battle. And the question a lot of, a lot of people that I've spoken to have sort of asked each other is this, is do revolutionaries ever retire? It's kind of, kind of a strange, it's a, it's a, it's a funny kind of formulation really, I think. And I, it's, a, it's a question to consider then, do we actually ever retire as revolutionaries and trying to, trying to change the world? And I, I guess I'll, I'll leave it on, on that note and thank thank you all once again for um for being here today and having having a great chat thanks a lot bye thank you it was a lot of fun it was great thank you thanks to you for listening for more information visit our website urbanpolitical.podigy.io Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter.